Hey legends, my name is Mo and welcome to the Can't Can World podcast. I'm a Royal Marine who is dedicated to optimizing human performance and want to bring you exposure to the fantastic people supporting the same aim. In this episode, I speak to an individual who served in the Royal Navy for 23 years and is now practicing functional movement neurology. We talk about his devotion of sports rehabilitation and his passion for making people better tomorrow than today. Episode one, Mark Jones. Hey mate, how's it going? So what's the best thing you've done in the last week or so? Put Christmas back a day. I weren't ready for it. Oh really? (laughs) Why's that? You've had like 365 days to plan for it. (laughs) It seems that way. Um, No, I just felt so burned out from from this year. It's been such a crazy year. So I just couldn't face (laughs) all all the prep and the rest of it. So I just pushed it back. So Christmas day was on Boxing Day and it worked really well. Whole day in pajamas. I was happy with What, that. on Christmas Day? <laughs> yeah. So was the big man kind to you? Did he bring you anything nice? He did. He brought me a younger woman, a younger model. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. It's been a good year. That, that's, Santa, not, that's, not, that's not a bad year at all. Santa's kind. Well, fair play. <laughs> um, so we're going to go back to the, to the start of your professional career, really. And, you know, if you could just relive the moments where you decided, I'll tell you what, joining the Navy is a good idea. And just talk us through that time in your life. Um, I think that'd be a great starting point. Okay. Yeah, well, we go back a few years. Um, so I just always had this romantic notion about life and adventure. And I just wanted to kind of get away from just the, the status quo of where I lived. There was no one really inspiring around me. Everyone seemed to just live in the same place and their families all grew up in the same place. And that just really made me uncomfortable. So yeah, I tried to I tried to, to join the Merchant Navy from about 16 years old. I wrote multiple let- letters off and I never really got anything back. Um, I had a string of jobs that I'd rapidly get bored in. I think I counted 16 jobs um, until I finally ended up going for Royal Navy uh, and I was 18 by then so I joined as a chef and uh, it was my ticket out really I was I was I was I'd started doing the YTS chef scheme that was that was pretty interesting and yeah that was that was 1991 so we're going back a couple of wow. years first first Gulf War <laughs> just after yeah I wait till it's finished well if there's any consolation I started secondary school in 93 <laughs> yeah you're not helping me <laughs> It was all in black and white. So you, you signed up for the Navy and rally, it was yeah, then, yeah, yeah? yeah? How did you find the training? Um, I think it's just different. You don't know anything. You don't know anything until you try something new. So uh, I, I enjoyed it, actually. I, I enjoyed being different. I enjoyed knowing that my mates back home weren't doing the same stuff that I was I was up to. And it was also knowing what was to come. It was the unknown. I, I love the idea of the unknown. I get bored if, if there's a routine and I know what's coming up. It does make me squirm. So yeah, I kind of like I like the the idea that life can go wherever it wants to go, and that's where it kind of that's where it started to happen for me. And I, I enjoyed it. I loved the things I was learning. I learned about me more than I learned about the Navy. So and that journey never stopped. And so what, what did you learn about yourself about training? Uh, just what you will, just what you're able to do. I think uh, as as a young lad growing up, you know, life. Life's not exactly hard, you know, there's obviously bits going on, but then having to do your own washing, ironing, cleaning, all, all the things that come from just basic, basic living, <laughs> you have to learn it all yourself, there's no one to do it for you. And you learn that you can stand up for yourself and do a lot more stuff than you previously thought possible, because you have to. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah that, right. That was good. How did you feel when you finished the training? 
Well, obviously, I'm going to be embarrassed saying this as your Royal Marine and uh, <laughs> Navy training is a, is a snip. It's ten weeks. I was really proud. I, I was really proud. You know, even to wear the <laughs> even to wear the uniform with the with the flares, albeit. Yeah, and I, I was I was I was proud to wear the uniform and and actually be doing something purposeful. And I think that's been that's been the core of everything I have been as a person today I just wanted to be useful not not just whip through life and actually have no effects I really felt I was, the journey had started I didn't know what it was at the time yeah of course so we whisked off to chef's training in Aldershot um, which was a massive come down working with the army <laughs> Com- accommodation although it was pretty low standards went went lower <laughs> and was um, that straight off so you finished basic training and then went straight into chef into, into chef right. school yeah yeah so so what was that that was that was like 12 weeks um, as a chef. Then you do the catering side of things and then you get drafted straight after that. So yeah, within a within a year, full year, I was fully trained. And where did you go after that? What was the life like as a chef? It was interesting, actually. It, it was good because you're learning a skill that I've never forgotten and all the jokes apart, you know, no one, no one's qualified as a chef. No, I, I, I learned some really, really good skills. And again, it's also about you learn resilience you learn the fact that it's, there's days where you don't want to do things and but you have to so you have to kind of step up to the plate all the time and to be honest i think even though where i'm at now sat in this in this clinic on xmf key um, one of the things that stuck with me was that you've just got to get stuff done if there's if there's jobs that need doing you've just got to get it done and and massively came from being a chef I think uh, even when you're on board a ship, you know, you could be hungover or seasick. You know, that counter goes up at half 11 and the men will get served. <laughs> there will be food. Get on with it. And and that's really stayed with me. I think I think I've taken a lot from from being a chef and most of it's not cooking. It's mindset. Um, I mean, it's a pretty thankless job as well. You know, if you produce some good food, you never sort of get a pat on the back. But you'll know about it if you produce food that's not not to the to the liking <laughs> of the, the customer, shall we shall we say. Yeah, you can't, you never seem to win. And it is hard work. It's seriously hard work. I mean, some days you're in the galley for sometimes 16 hours and, and you know, that that as it's told. But you, again, you learn another level of resilience in that respect. And describe what, what a galley is on board a ship and why it's tough to operate on in, in those conditions. Uh, okay, so the galley sits above the engine room, just on the sea level, sea line of the ship. Um, it's right in the middle of the ship, and it's literally a floating kitchen. Everything's compact, condensed. You know, just the space is fairly meagre. You've got multiple ovens and hot plates, and it just gets red hot. The environment can be can be really uncomfortable, especially. I think once we had it up to fifty two degrees in the galley one night which was uh <laughs> which was warm enough you know no one went cold that day and there's multiple chefs there's different watches people people preparing different meals and everyone's working around each other you learn about your own space you learn that you have to be cleaner than clean and yeah you you really have to manage your space and your time effectively and what would a typical day look like uh, well the chef's watches would start you'd, you'd do a duty watch you'd be on from eight o'clock in the morning until eight at night so you'd work through the day preparing so you'd prepare the evening meal and then then you'd come in the morning you'd do the morning watch and that was for breakfast so you'd be up like half four so you'd be up half four cooking at five and then you'd you'd 
thin out, they call it. Leave the galley about nine o'clock, and then you was on you was on call for any other kind of watches, firefighting. So there's, there's multiple jobs on a ship. You don't just do your job. There's other there's other responsibilities. Yeah, and, and you you just roll through watches like that. So there was a four watch system. So there was always people available. You was either pot wash. <laughs> It's a good job that is. I remember pot wash well. Pot wash, yeah. If you're under pun or you're a chef, and it's actually your day job. Gas <laughs> compactor. Paid. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, well. that was that was always a good one. Waist deep in everyone else's crap. Yeah, yeah, that was always <laughs> a good one. So, where did being a chef in the navy take you around the world? What where, whereabouts have you been? What some of the memorable moments that you you had? Um, I had I had two two ships, uh, two sea drafts as a chef, all down through the Gulf, down to Singapore, um, through Egypt. You know that that was that was that was really interesting. Uh, all through India, so I have travelled. I've travelled most of the world. Did you get to stop off much? You do. Um, you'd get two, maybe three days, but obviously just the work still needs to get done. So you you just continually roll and work through that. So you don't really get much time off. But yeah, we all down through the Mediterranean. It's interesting. We've, we've traveled to so many different places. And yeah, no, it's uh, it, like I said, it was hard. It was hard graft, but really rewarding at the same time. I think the fact you know you're, you know you're able to achieve it, it, it weren't necessarily the, the rolling out the, the top cuisine <laughs> culinary expertise on the counter. It was knowing that no matter what was thrown at you, you could overcome, you could adapt. And I, I always liked that. I like knowing I was kind of thriving you know in that environment hmm. no it's interesting to uh to understand that side i've always always been the other side you know i'm i'm the one that when the counter goes up looking at the food thinking what on earth is this i don't even know what it what it <laughs> what it is when you look at it let alone what it tastes like you know so it's interesting to try and understand the other side of the counter as it were was there any operational deployments yeah we had kosovo um, we were down in kosovo we were just sat off bravely away from the coast <laughs> um what was your what was your ship's task there so we were just patrolling up and down we, we were just being available should anything happen i think we got we we got buzzed by one um one aircraft i think but that was like 400 mile away so <laughs> <laughs> they tend to deploy weapons and then and then um bugger off quite rapid so we, we never knew what was going to happen it was an interesting time but you're, you're in defense watches so you're you're either six hours on, six hours off, or eight chefs tend to work eight watches. So you just don't know what day, day of the week it is. Time's irrelevant. All you know is when you're off and when you're on. So that that was interesting. Yeah, I think I think you're just prepared for for stuff. I always kind of wanted something to happen. Um, it's probably the, probably the worst thing is the not knowing. Yeah, I think there was there was a buzz. There was there was just a general buzz. We all kind of we all just wanted our training to kind of to kind of mean a little bit more we wanted it to kind of happen in a, in a strange kind of way not, not that you want people to get hurt or obviously what, with what war brings but you just wanted it was just one of those things you wanted to know could you cope with it because obviously the Falklands was a big one for the Navy you know we lost so much but we learned so much and not, not to reminisce that's the wrong word but it was just a case of I always wanted to find out what I was capable of doing so, and I think as a, as a young guy, as a young lad, as young people, you, you generally don't have the fears that you do when you're slightly older. So you look back, you're a little bit more uh, rough and ready. You, you want a little bit of something to happen. You want a bit of excitement. And that's kind of all it was, really. Um, but it was good. It, it, it was good. And how long were you a chef for? I was a chef for eight years. I spent eight years trying to get out of it. Yeah, okay. So that wasn't obviously your career choice when you joined the Navy then? 
Um, no, it was. I knew I, I knew it was a passable in, but I knew it weren't a thing I wanted to to stay doing. I just felt I was a square peg in a round hole. A yeah. lot, of, a lot of chefs would get a little bit frothy and happy about what they were going to make and produce, and a, a lot, a lot of navy chefs, particularly, are they go down a competition route. So they'll either be cake decorators or they're really interested in producing like the high end quality food. I was happy just to cook enough stuff. Just not on ship for Marines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you you sat there one day and you're like, right, I need a I need a career change. So explain that decision and and why and where you ended up. I think it's a, it's a strange one. I've always looked at it and and looked back and thought, I don't even know where that came from. I always wanted to be a physio. Okay. And at the time, there was no such thing as a physiotherapist in the navy. There was no exercise rehab instructors which is what I later became but I just had this sense of purpose it's say what call it what you want but a sense of destiny that I needed to be in the job I'm in now but I didn't kind of know what it was at the time so the closest thing I could think of was becoming a PT instructor which for me being sport billy as in (laughs) the opposite of sport billy couldn't catch throw uh, <laughs> kick or bat I was useless but I was just drawn to it I don't know what it was I was drawn to it and, and the kudos of the job and there was one of them on a ship you know there's multiple of other trades but there was one ship's PTI and he seemed to get away with the most and <laughs> you know he he was able to create all these different things like you're a bit of a red coat as a PT instructor on a ship you, you do all the sport you keep everyone fit but then also games and you know things like bingo night because being on a ship is monotonous so I saw this this guy was able just to create stuff and have fun and I was just drawn to that I love the idea of that um, but essentially I wanted to be a physiotherapist so I ended up trying to pursue it strangely call it destiny call it what you want I don't know but it I, I was drawn down that route how did you find the course? The PT course itself, I found really difficult because you're getting ragged every single day. You've got to produce written work. So you're up you're up at half five, six o'clock every day. You're finishing work, gone midnight most nights, producing paperwork, doing rope climbing, gymnastics, vaulting. You know, you're really being put to the to the limits. And then you've got to learn every sport, referee in every sport. So one of my main injuries came from netball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was embarrassed to say that, but yeah. Good um, game. It's a good game. <laughs> it's quite vicious. Some of these women. Yeah. Very vicious. I, I've, I've learned. <laughs> Don't take them on face value. They can be badass. Yeah. Agreed. And how, so how long was that course? That was six months that was. Uh, HMS Temeraire in Portsmouth. And a lot of physical fitness on there as well. All day, every day, yeah, it's relentless. So you'd do two, sometimes three circuits. You'd be out for a run. You'd be doing as soon as you join the course. As soon as you join the course, you're starting pass out preps, which is gymnastics, club swinging. What's that old dance that you do as well? <laughs> the one that Marines always take the piss out yeah, of us for. What, what is it? Was that's it called hornpipe dance. That's the I one. Yeah, like that. I'll teach you that. It's after interesting, this. isn't it? You know, I think that anyone <laughs> listening to this should Google it and uh, or have a look on YouTube. Not my proudest moment. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's, it's fairly fairly good, isn't it? White flares. It's a, it's a traditional dance of Something the Something out of the 1970s. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you mentioned there that it's it's a relentless course. Did you do anything specifically to prepare yourself for that? And, and how did you manage to keep getting up every day and keep going and, and doing that? Knowing, you know, I'm sure there'd be a, a course program that you'd be forecasting 
oh, in two weeks, we've got to do that. Or next week, we've got... How did you overcome that when you was on that course? I think it was more about not wanting to go back to being a chef. I knew that I just had enough and it was this or bust. It had to be this. So that was my driver. It was what I didn't want to go back to. Outweighed what I wanted to go towards, if, if that's the right word. I didn't really get on with the instructors to start with. In fact, for the majority of the course... Yeah, they didn't take to me. I, I, weren't, I weren't a PT groupie or anything. So I, I, I will admit I was naive. I didn't really know what the course entailed. I saw a bit of fitness instruction on the flight deck and I thought that was it. Um, so yeah, I kind of muddled my way through. It was, I just didn't want to fail. That was that was the thing. I just wanted to succeed. So I, was, I, had, I had to become resilient. The saying, you can't break me, I'm a rubber duck. You know, sometimes you just get past the hour and then the next hour and then at the end of the day after selection of hour or collection of hours, you know, you've made it through the day. And for me, a lot of the PT course was like that because I knew, I knew there was, I knew that if I didn't, if I didn't live like that, then I probably would have had my spirit broken, I suppose. So I knew that just by narrowing it down hour by hour, I could stay and it was just take, take the little successes I, I'd, I'd managed another day. And then, lo and behold, I managed the entire course. I'd done, I'd done enough to pass. So you finished a PT course, which is a fantastic achievement. What was the uh, your, your first assignment as a uh, Royal Navy PTI? Uh, it was RNS Coldrose, so the air base down in Cornwall and Helston. Um, and that's where, that's where you really learn the job and you realise that 90% of the job weren't on PT course. It was more of an administration role. So you're organising so much. And it just takes over so much of your life and you have to commit, you have to be seen to be out there, to be doing the job. So there was a lot more expected of me than I than I previously expected. So I was a bit bewildered by it all, I suppose. It weren't what I thought it was going to be. Um, so that's that's when I started having a look around to see what else was, was going on. And that's when I first, in that draft, first met a rehab instructor and that just sounded amazing. So what was it about that though? Like what did the rehab instructor do and why, why did you, why do you think that sounded amazing? What was it that you connected with? Because ultimately mm. the introduction to that particular individual has kind of shaped what we're going to discuss as we, as we move forward in this little chat that we're having, you know, what, what was yeah. it about it in, in essence that you went, that's it. Okay. So to, to contrast the job, my job as a PT was just to sign out squash rackets, organize events. It's important if you want to play squash though. It is. Yeah. If you didn't do it. No, people rubbish play squash. squash. <laughs> no, it just, it just seemed it was just too much routine. I, I just couldn't love the job. I just couldn't love it. It, it was just admin administration you had to organize this and by the time before you'd even organize that there was something else you had to organize and it was just it just seemed like there was just this relentless paperwork trail and then I saw this guy that he was talking a different language he was talking the language I liked it was like his anatomy and how he could understand how the body moved and how he, if you did a certain tweak here or a tweak there or you exercise this you could get someone out of pain and then I saw a purpose so it was you're not just jacking up hockey matches and trying to cajole people into playing a sport all of a sudden you was really helping someone you was changing someone's life and I think that's that was the massive draw to it and it still is now still it's still my driver is to be purposeful to be able to to make a real significant change to someone's life that was that was the draw and if I could do it through this I was all up for that I wanted a piece of that you're obviously hooked on that 
and yeah. you ended up on the exercise rehabilitation course. Yeah, that's right. It was Headley Court. You go, you do your aptitude, make sure that you're okay you're, you're with the knowledge. So it's a six-month course in Headley Court and yeah, it's tri-service, so Army, Navy, Air Force. And it really felt like I was finally stepping up. I felt, I did feel very proud to be on that and very, uh, very honoured, especially when you go to places like UCL, uh, the University of London, where you work on cadavers and people who donate their bodies to science and you're respectfully allowed to have a look at how the body works. So you're literally picking up someone's leg and you're having a pull around of the muscles and the tendons and you just knew that there was this newfound respect for the body what it does and it was just this ingenious this living organism that's the human body it was just this wow moment and I've I've never I've never stopped appreciating it and marveling it and and every year I learn more I know more I see more and it yeah it was just it was just incredible I realized I was learning some very precious knowledge and I've always always been very very grateful and proud to have been through that and when we turned up, it was a fairly quiet place, and that was just as Afghanistan kicked off. So it went from being a re- real ghost town and not much going on to being absolutely ram-packed to the rafters with these young guys. You know, I remember coming out, me and the lads were bitching about homework we had to have. We had like an inch-thick pad or collection of paperwork, and we had to learn this stuff. And, and we were... We were like upset that we had this, that we had to do all this stuff. And I, I remember vividly walking out the door. As I opened the door, this lad went past in a wheelchair, a leg missing and an arm missing. He had a claw on his hand and he was trying to push his wheelchair up the slope. And I just looked at the other guys and I was like, gents, we've got no problems at all. You know, we're really lucky to be <laughs> healthy. You know, we've got our arms, we've got our legs. Yeah, we've got a bit of own work to do. So that kind of made us work even harder to want to learn more, to be more, to be better for these people. That's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be worthy and be able to, to to make a difference to someone. That's what I wanted to do, but realistically make a difference. So yeah, we were around a lot of people. It was quite harrowing when you saw the, the sheer extensive nature of the injuries that some of these guys came back with. It was, it was insane. So yeah, uh, the, <laughs> that allowed me to learn at a better level. And so, and so what, um, what year was that that you did that course? That was 2007, that was. Okay, and then you finished that course and where was your first, what was your first job as a, as a rehab instructor? Uh, that was the regional rehab unit in Plymouth. Yeah. And that was running residential classes or residential courses. They were three-week courses. So I really love that model and I want to, I want to, I want to steal that model when I open up a, a larger clinic later on. But it was really, it was a really, really good setup. So you have a a, a MIAC clinic, a multidisciplinary injury assessment clinic, and in that clinic was a sports med doctor, a physiotherapist, and an exercise rehabilitation instructor. So you had this contrast of skills and perspectives, and we're all looking at different things. So we're able to provide a bigger cross-section of service to them while they're on this three-week course. So they could turn up with, they, they would normally sp- split down into two courses, backs or spines and then low limbs. So anyone who had a low limb injury, didn't matter what it was, but you'd rehab for three weeks and it was, you just got to work with them. But for me, I, that was when, that was the turning point because that's when I realised then that you're not working with an injury no one's an injury everyone's a person and two people can have the same injuries but because of their backgrounds cultural differences lifestyle differences life experience differences 
that injury meant something different to each person. And that was a real eye-opener. That's when I started realizing, wow, the person, you have to work with the person. You have to rehab the person, not just the injury. You've got to get in their heads first and win them. And that's when I, that was one of the biggest learning curves I ever had. It was like, it was a big light bulb moment. It was like, ah, I see. Get the person, then you can rehabilitate the injury. That's what I found. Yeah, and no, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, that, that, that type of environment is quite, I, I found it had a profound effect on me as it, as it clearly, clearly did with you. But moreover, when the work that was being conducted at Hazler Naval Service Recovery Centre hmm. was just, for me, something, something else. Like, it was, uh, it was incredible. And I, and I know that you had got some vivid memories of the place. I have, yeah. I mean, if we fast forward, so I'd left the regional rehab unit. I went to uh, Dartmouth and then HMS Rally. But then I got selected and I felt so privileged because I was the first Navy rehab instructor to get to Hasler Company. Hasler being, it was a complex trauma unit, as you know, Mo, obviously you were there before me, but it, it it was genius. It was... It was a home given to Royal Marines who'd suffered the atrocities of uh, Afghanistan. Whereas a lot of tri-service would go to Headley Court. Hasler was, inv- Hasler was created to give Royal Marines a home so they had somewhere to come back to so they could identify with. And it was a stroke of genius, I think, just the actual creation of it. But then with what it, what it served to do and the sheer cross cross-section of injuries and traumas the emotional traumas ptsd uh, triple amputees like right across the board so to see just to see the scale of it was harrowing but then to see that no matter what someone suffered they were still that same person inside and yeah the human resilience that's where i really really saw the spirit of the person no one can crush the spirit of the man. Only, only the man can allow it to be crushed. And so no matter what injuries anyone has sustained, as long as, as long as they had the spirit and that willingness to succeed and overcome and adapt, you're going to win. And I've seen that with a lot of the guys who've gone on. Yes, they got maimed in war, but a lot of them, they went on, they've gone on to do greater things because of that, in spite of their injuries, in spite of what they had inflicted on them they became they use that to become better they 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 overcome that a lot of people have gone off the mad explorers have gone and done five continents you know solo unsupported it's incredible i mean would these guys have done that before no i don't think they would a lot of people have achieved like great things because they suffered adversity and i i don't i don't think you should slip through life being comfortable. I think you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And it just seemed that those who suffered the most had more resilience and they had more they had more drive to get out and do more. And I think the other thing as well is because they were in a they were in a group together, they weren't sent home on their own. They didn't suffer on their own. They're around the same like minded people with the same banter, that dark black humour that just gets them bouncing back. They were the ones who thrived because they were brought back into that environment. It was that they they belonged. They were in their own. They were around their own people, and I loved that. And I saw that that was the most powerful thing. There, there's, there was all these different treatments and therapies that, that were available, but the most important therapy I ever saw was just guys being together and just sharing their experiences. That that for me was just wow. I saw I saw that change people's lives, and you'd see broken people coming into Hasla, 
and then you'd get them ground zeroed and they'd start building new things on top of that and that that was incredible for me so yeah and i use that every day i i, I never ever forget any day in hasla so I use that every single day and I use that to inspire people who come through. It might be someone's nan, might be a school child come through with a fairly minor injury. But I draw on those experiences and I, and I tell some of the stories about what the guys had gone through. And people are still inspired by that. So good can still come from adversity, I think. It's how you perceive it. It's how you choose to view it. Is there any, any particular standout stories that are off the tip of the tongue that you, that you remember that you use still today? No, there, there's there's nothing because they're all they're all amazing stories. Each each person's each person's background and story and their injury and their and their road to recovery was was different. But it's just that collective. It just seemed to be if you wanted it, if you wanted if you wanted the change, if you had the will and the spirit to do something, you you could do it. You, you there was like a process. People would turn up. They were broke. They were downbeat. Someone inspired them. Someone mentored them. I know that you did a lot of that yourself, Mo, because the stories I heard were all about you when when I joined. So obviously I uh, had a, <laughs> stepped into a big shadow. That's twice the size of mine. <laughs> as long as there was someone there to meet them, to motivate them, to show them the way, to mentor them, they could then move on and become something better, some, some, something better than they already were because they, they were able to change, but they were motivated and encouraged by the people that were around them. So... It was the process more than anything else. And I think that's what I try and do day to day here is I try and I try and do that mentoring as well. So people come in with injuries here and I'll treat that, but I'll also treat that person remembering how it worked in Hasla. And I'll, tr- I'll try and motivate them and encourage them and show them that there is a way. And no matter what you suffer, you choose to get out of bed in the morning. You choose to overcome it. Don't be, uh, don't be defined by your injury or disability or label that someone's put on you you can you can choose to say no to that and you can choose to move on from that there's a perfect mix there where as you said you're the guys and girls are around like-minded individuals they had people around them to support them both mm. domestically and professionally and that's you know part of the reason why i got out of bed in the morning there's been no job that i've ever had that has been that's topped that but i think the third supporting factor was the content to me, it wasn't necessarily about doing physical rehab with these people, as you've said. And that's the reason why, you know, you did all the computer work and I didn't. And I just basically <laughs> sat on the mats having a chat with everybody. Um, but it was the content. And, you know, I was fortunate enough, as you were, to go out to America to the Wounded Warrior Trials. Hmm. Um, out to, uh, unfortunately, out to San Diego. It was tough. It was a real tough trip. <laughs> um, and... Out of all the incredible and inspiring stories that would happen out there, one story that I still laugh about now was, and I'll keep him nameless, but those that know, know. My roomie decided he was going to go out for a few beers and he came back and that night he slept on the floor because he didn't want to wet the bed because he had a bit of a problem with that. But he wet the floor. And so he went out the following night and he slept in his bed and he wet the bed. And when I asked him in the morning, why didn't you sleep on the floor? He said, because I'd already wet that. And it was a new place that I needed to, this is the only dry place left. And I just, it was just, uh, yeah, it was funny. But that was, that was an incredible, incredible experience out in America. Yeah, it was great, especially to, to work with the Americans out there as well. And they're, you know, they, they, they're really held in high regard 
Uh, they're, they're, they're like national heroes for what they've done, their service. And and I think we, we were able to follow suit, I think. Um, the British public got behind behind the guys and, you know, all of a sudden, just from being squaddies or, you know, whatever we were called, you know, all of a sudden people were saying thank you to, to the guys, you know, and you can see the, the there was there was pride there as well and you know i think that was encouraged by the americans but yeah it's just it was it it was the scale of it and it was it was the it was the overcoming so obviously it was the warrior trials uh, preceding the games and it was just everyone was an athlete i love that people were just athletes you weren't viewed upon by your by what bits you had missing off your what you couldn't do it was all about you you're part of it you're you are an athlete and and i saw i saw those kind of opportunities really changed people i mean prince harry with the invictus games just just the sheer mention that it was going to happen changed people all of a sudden they weren't disabled and you'd never get a serviceman calling themselves disabled you know that's a it, it, it provided term. the element of competition yeah about it was equality was what i found it was less the actual events but more the the opportunity to be able to compete mm. on an even playing field mm. and that was what for me watching that happen really as you mentioned the ground zero really then started to build people and if you remember on that particular trip you had the, the likes of frank spencer mm. who is a world record holder having rode across the atlantic not once but twice you know four-man crew mm. single We've got the likes of Chris Hayes, who's now set his own business up. You know, think of the, the the place that he was in. Nick Goldsmith, who's got Hidden Valley Bushcraft. JJ Chalmers, who's now, you know, a bit of a, as a dancing queen um, <laughs> yeah. on, on the BBC. Paul Weiss has got his own, own business now, employable. I mean, none of them have become sporting stars. But the success that they and where they've grown into has been has been really incredible to watch. And it's almost like, being a youngster, you know, a young boxer's boxing coach and watching them become the world champion without you there. It's, it's, and to be a part of that is certainly, for, certainly I, I found it was pretty incredible. Yeah, and I think, I think sport does that. You know, it, it provides an opportunity where there's adversity or an opposition, you know, and life does that. I think sport and business and life generally, they're all the same things. Uh, sport is just on a very um, small scale, as in time-wise, time spent playing. But you have to adapt. You have to live in the same way. You have to have the same mindset. So there's an opposition. Do you choose to to stand up against it? Do you choose to overcome? And and it's like there will be challenges. You will get knocks. You will get noodles. But it's transferable skill. That's why the the old RFU, the old rugby players, before it became a full time profession, they were all high flying businessmen. And I think it's because of the same ethos that they had on the pitch as they did in business. And I think that's what we're seeing now is those sporting opportunities showed them that they were still relevant they were still worthwhile they're, they're still in the game because I think they felt a little bit knocked out oh I don't have this anymore I can't do that anymore but what it showed them is what they could have instead you got if you can't change the situation you've got to choose, change your perception of it and that's what I think was the big success with with the Warrior Games with Invictus they they saw themselves differently and they allowed themselves the opportunity to change and become what they truly can and I think a lot of people really achieved their potential because and only because of that adversity they probably wouldn't do it people would have been stuck in their same 
in the same jobs. And I'm not saying being a Royal Marine's easy by any stretch. It's the hardest military course in the world, you know. But it, some some people won't go beyond that. These guys were pushed out, and it was like, all right, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it well. You know, to talk of Nick Goldsmith to go off. He's one of the top guys in the country, if not the world. Bushcraft, you know, he's highly sought after because he was his hand was kind of forced in that in that direction. Chris Hayes with his amazing artwork with with the welding, you know, it's incredible. But they sought to change, and I think those opportunities provided the future for them. I no, th- no, I, I agree with you. But but yeah, I don't think you should underestimate the value that you had in that process because whilst that might have forced them into making a decision, none of it was done alone because there were people there to support. Um, mm. And having had conversations with with the guys, you know the, the work that you that you did was invaluable because you have a passion for it. And it and it it doesn't surprise me that your transition into civilian life has has remained on that trajectory of trying to support and help people, but in your own right now. Mm. So the decision to move away from the military must have been quite a tough choice. I mean, you're you're knocking on a bit in age anyway but um you know so it probably forced your hand as much as it as much as it did anyone else's but explain the transition from 25 year career you know like what what, yeah. what did that feel like and and how did you then what did you then move into well i think i i did my full 22 year service and then i got extended at hasler for another 18 months as a reservist i love what i was doing and i love the guys and i love the purpose we had we designed some um we designed a program where there was other things going on so there was like a a music a music course and a cookery course and it was the cooking was good i remember going over there yeah who was the chap that who was the chap that was a the Rod Naylor. Yeah, that's him. Rod he was an amazing bloke. Yeah, we had Michael Caines eat him because Rod yeah. actually taught Michael Caines how to cook. Yeah. So he pulled a little favour and he got him in as uh, as the figurehead. But I mean that that was that was incredible. But the the general the general background to it was what could we give what could we give these guys back? You know, they've they they went away as this strapping raw marine, you know, something bad happened, you know, there was explosions, you know, they 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 were maimed, they they came back and they were no longer able to serve as a Royal Marine and you know they they were pretty damn beat by that but it was just a case of there's got to be good stuff still to go. So my first thing was right, let's 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 put them on a bike maintenance course, you know. So he so if you can fix your kid's bike for them, you know, you're back to hero dad. <laughs> and that was yeah, it. It was a case of, come on, let's give them some skills back. And then we had that. Then we had, then the cookery kicked in. I mean, one lad, he, he actually became a, he, he requalified as a chef. And now he's working in a Michelin star restaurant. Just off the back of, he just happened to turn up. We had... Is that, um... Grayson. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah, he did, didn't he? Yeah, it's just, I, I love seeing all that stuff. It was opportunities. Uh, we had uh, Debs Morris, um, the Sergeant Major's wife. She was, she was a brilliant. Yeah, Al Lasseur, wasn't it? Yeah, Remember? yeah. He, well, went, he, he didn't even know he could draw. No, he, he rocked could... up to steal the pencils. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm only coming at steal the pens. <laughs> he got bollocks for that. Yeah, and how, how he didn't even know. How amazing was he? Well, he can draw he? like a black and white photograph. If he, he he did he did these amazing amazing pictures. One of them was an elephant, and I and I, yeah, and I, I thought that. it was a photograph. Yeah. He's like, no, 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 no. I, I he did didn't that. even know he could do it. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
so so the deal was it was a case of right you can you because there was a lot of guys there it was like 50 people at one time all all in hasler at one time there was maybe, multiple maybe, people maybe we could have given him a watch and he could have turned up on time as well <laughs> maybe that would have but, but it was like you can you can because the thing in the, in the military everyone likes to bitch about everything um and i said right look you can bitch about any of the things that, that you've done i said but if you haven't tried it you ain't allowed to pitch that's that's the rule so if you want to bitch about the cooking you got to go there once and if you want to bitch about the art you got to do that once as well and if i remember rightly junior McElhinney mm. was moaning about the art he says i don't want to do the art hmm. and he ended up going to the art class and loved it yeah yeah and junior is actually rowing across the atlantic right now yeah he's, he's out there doing that right now and he's it's, it's it's incredible i think the one thing that stood out for me that was the very first art class and it was a it was pastels they had to do <laughs> i the, mean the I, lads I, only turned up because they thought they could eat them yeah. <laughs> they wanted to eat the they're fruit not fruit bowl. pastels lads <laughs> but the room was the room was filled and it was our first thing i was a bit nervous because it's like oh i wonder how this is gonna go and the vivid memory is is junior standing up because i mean he i won't go into it but he got blown out of an armored vehicle and he had his legs crushed by by the the, the turret or the, the gun itself so this this poor guy has been in agony and, and no amount of meds was kind of dent in the pain he, he wore his pain every day and and he came up he just it just he, he put his pastels down he didn't eat them didn't eat yeah, crowns good. and um he just said that's the first time i've been out of pain for an hour and a half since i got blown up and that was we're talking years here so that was when i started realizing like how powerful the brain was and the creative side and the one another thing i saw was the uh that wherever there was darkness another light shone so one guy ed captain ed gentleman ed he started writing poetry you know and if you ever read that i mean people were chopping onions you know your eyes were streaming and it was insanely good yeah and it was just like wow these these guys who'd suffered adversity got this new super skill owl could draw you know yeah yeah junior can eat pastels can eat pastels (laughs) (laughs) but it was and and that's the human spirit the right there and 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 that's one thing i i i took but sorry i've gone off on a tangent here but to answer your question how did how did i transition i felt i was squeezed out you know i I had a bit of a i had a bit of a time i I was signed back in i was given an eight-year extension to stay in in the navy at the time i was the the highest qualified guy they had i enjoyed the job i was told i could come back into hasler but then navy drafting being what navy drafting is sent me somewhere else yeah i remember and i just didn't fit anymore i didn't fit i'd learned too much by this time i'd got a sports rehabilitation degree got my first class honours there i will say um only because i was desperate to learn they didn't it have that program turn it in though then did they where they could scan the uh plagiarism no plagiarism that, that was your course afterwards I <laughs> yeah <didn't know. laughs> um, there's one after mine actually <laughs> no i mean so so i i just wanted to know i wanted to know how things worked and and i didn't like not knowing and the fact when you've got people who, who are your friends you know they're, they're they're your oppos and and they're in pain and i didn't have the answers and i didn't like it and i and I couldn't stand not being able to help people. It really, really, it, it really, it really stings. And I still don't like that. But that drive you used to, didn't you self-fund a course in Chicago? Hmm. Didn't you fly out? You don't, What course was that? that you, because I remember when you did that and everyone was looking at, what are you doing? Like that's, <laughs> why are you flying out off your, you know, paid thousands of pounds to go to America 
to go and learn about a different way of rehab. I mean, that's mm. you all over. Your your quest for your thirst for knowledge mm. is 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 uh is pretty impressive. But what what was that course all about? So that was a Gray Institute, um, written by. Uh, driven by Gary Gray, Dave Tiberio. I was uh, on on my degree, one of the instructors, uh, Chris Paul, was he teaches all the things that the university wanted to teach us and then he'd go, Do you want some secret sauce? You know, he says, oh, he said, This is how the body really works. And basically it's all back to front. Everything about everything that the books say about biomechanics, which is basically how a human being moves, is back to front. So take for instance, I mean I won't bore you, but the hamstring, if you're laying on a plinth or if you're laying on your front and you curl the hamstring, you fire that. So people think that the hamstring ex- or flexes the knee. It brings your heel up to your backside. In reality, it doesn't. It does the exact opposite. When you're swinging your foot forward, the heel hits the ground, then the hamstring engages to prevent the opposite movement happening. So it was really like putting on back to front glasses and looking at the body completely back to front. And then for me, it was just this massive light bulb moment. It was like, oh my God, that's how it works. So I'd seen all these little things. I'd seen how- which is sorry to interrupt, but that's not necessarily what we would learn on the rehab course. I mean, but then no, in no, fairness, no. the rehab course that we did was a foundation anyway. Yeah. It was a basic, um, it, for for want of a better description, it was a basic, although quite intense, information dump to provide a functional rehab as we knew it. I mean, this this must have been you know leagues above what what you'd been doing. Uh, I was insane. Yeah, I mean, the the Headley Court course was was brilliant. You know, it, it it was the foundations, like you say. It taught me exercise therapy. So, for those who don't know what it is, an exercise therapist would use exercise as a medicine. You know, you'd get the body to move in certain ways. You'd strengthen muscles, giving specific exercises. But they kind of worked, and then they kind of didn't, and it, it didn't make sense. Why would why would someone with an Achilles problem benefit from this exercise, and then someone who had the same thing? They're not. It's like, well, it didn't make no sense. So it was, why, why, why? I just become that annoying kid that the parent <laughs> wants to just bugger off, leave him alone to the telly. Why does that not work? Why, why, why? So on the degree, we were shown, we were shown this this new interpretation of functional movement, and that was the the Gary Gray course. And I'd learned enough. I'd seen how it kind of worked. I got the gist of it. And the thing that made me put my money where my mouth was I had this big raw marine come in with knee pain and he'd done nine months rehabilitation for this knee pain that just wouldn't go away I mean he was built like a crap ass door you know he was six and a half foot tall he weren't that far short like wide and and he had this knee pain so I used some of these little tweaks so I would just look how the footwork look what the hip was doing and then like the thoracic spine the, the rib cage basically and I looked at him and I said there's nothing wrong with your knee he says, look, he said, I've got a knee pain. He said, I've done three, three week long rehabilitation courses. I'm seeing physiotherapists and doctors. I've had steroid injections. Of course, I've got knee pain. I said, no. I said, your knees are actually good. I said, what's not working is everything else. Your feet, your hips, your back. So, so we did this stuff. And anyway, lo and behold, in two weeks later, he was running where he couldn't run for a, a year, I think it was. So, yeah, so I, I went to America. It was three times out. I had to self-fund. Um... But I knew I was onto something. I knew I was. I knew there was a bigger picture, and and I felt, even though I can't explain it, I knew it was going somewhere. 
So I felt it was a worthwhile investment and, and I saw masses of changes in people, just little simple tweaks. I mean, I've worked on someone who was a high flyer guy for the Virgin and before he landed, he'd have to take a serious amount of medication because he knew his back pain was going to be so bad just from sitting. I did a biomechanical screen on him. I wiggled his ankles a little bit and he's never had back pain since. So it allows you to see where the problems are coming from rather than just chasing the pain. Someone will present with pain in their knee or their back and it allows you to stand back and not be sucked in by it but to find the root cause of it that course allowed me to leave and transition so yeah I, I tried I tried to implement these new movement drills and and it, it, like, I think they thought I was a witch because I was just doing different movements and they didn't understand it so I was kind of told that I weren't allowed to use it so it was naughty but I was I was like taking guys into the freaking broom cupboard and saying don't tell anyone you're getting better on a rehab course <laughs> it yeah, was yeah. just a little bit it was a little bit silly i won't go into in, into the into the politics of it but, but basically it, it, it was, it, you know, it's probably it's probably fair to say that what you were learning was ahead of its time and maybe yeah. and, and you know now it wouldn't be as taboo because it makes sense but five six years ago that is not where certainly that wasn't where we were with our with our rehab. Mm. Um, it was it was a different way of thinking. It was quite innovative and pioneering at the time, mm. um, which is exactly the reason why you 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 loved it. Yeah, I mean it it it, it still is. The, the driver is the human body. It's just insane. It's off the charts. We still don't understand it. You know, every specialist in every unique niche of studying the body, whether they're a doctor, a physio, they're the highest, highest part of the tree. You know, they, they know the most with all the research out there and they will do research articles and every single research article finishes with more research is needed. We just don't know, you know, if we want to jump off and go quantum mechanics, you know, we, we have the ability to go subatomic with the electron microscope and we can, we can look inside an atom we can go subatomic and then we can see what's inside a cell. You go down into a cell, you go into an atom and then you go inside to the subatomic particle and there's actually nothing there. It's just spinning particles of light, electrons and protons. There's, there's nothing in us. So effectively, we don't exist. So that's when you go, all right, I'm tapping out <laughs> Pandora's box. So yeah, we do, we just don't know enough. Um, but with with neurology with 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 looking at how the brain works you're looking at a computer software and hardware you know this the stuff i'm doing at the moment is just i i see genuinely see the miraculous every day and i've come to expect it now because i'm looking at this amazing human body i know we did a little bit earlier on i just tried to give you a little bit of an introduction to that but we're seeing that the body can heal itself no one so here's a here's a thing here's fact the, no one can heal you only your body can heal itself, whether it's through willpower, through nutrition, through meditation. Your body will heal itself using whatever's available. It's the most ridiculously resourceful, amazing, adaptive, overcoming organism. It is the most complex living organism in the universe. I mean, for the people that are listening, surely I'll go to a doctor to, to heal me. Is that not what they're for? I mean, it, 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 what's the context behind that, that statement? Okay, so so a doctor would look at your symptoms and based on your symptoms, it would make a diagnosis and then there'd be an intervention. It, it could be rest, it could be medication. But we know that medicine, medicine doesn't work to fix or cure the problem because 
they're aimed at mopping up symptoms. Uh, there was a convention last year where a collective of doctors from around the world went to Brisbane. And the sole purpose of that meeting was Western medicine isn't working. Why, why, why doesn't our diagnose and and uh, prescribe medicine why doesn't it work why is there so many variables why why doesn't it all work the same way and it's because every human being is like a fingerprint it is there's you've you've got to look at your your physical health your emotional health you've got to look at your past histories traumas your your culture um so they're all factors involved in that belief system uh, there's the placebo so if you believe something's happening the majority of the time it will that's one of the biggest problems all drug companies face is the placebo test it's the last test by time i think by time they've got by the time a drug has made it to that stage it's, it's well into the, into the hundred million pound mark and then they've got to go up against placebo and that placebo is does them does the drug perform better than the person believing the drug does and that's really really key essentially the body will heal itself or in any in any situation um so all we can do is provide the environment this is answer to your question really people create a change of environment so a surgeon would take away something that's 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 not good you know some something that, that that's that's catabolic in your system like a tumor they would take it out but it was your body that was kind of creating that in the first place why does that come back a physio or a therapist like me will create certain changes in the body but essentially it's the body relearning and changing the way it's sending out its impulses its information there's there's three things that happen in your human body information comes up from all the sensory organs so if i kicked you in the toe or stamped on your foot that that information will go to your brain your brain works out what's going on you'll either say ouch or you'll you'll knock me out you'll do one of the two you know you'll an effect will come sensory information to brain brain makes a decision and now that comes an output whatever that may be and everyone's different I mean, there's something called New Germanic Medicine. That's a really interesting one. That was uh, Gert Hamer. He was a German doctor who was a cancer specialist and he, he developed testicular cancer. And three years before he developed this cancer, his son was murdered. Uh, he was shot and murdered. And then his body goes into this state and he creates this testicular cancer according to him and his research 40,000 research studies or articles later showing that emotional traumas create these tumors in our body because it's an adverse effect um one of the interestingly one of the models or stories he tells is if if a fox cub is is sick in the wild the mother cub all she can do is nourish that cub so she'll proliferate her uh, breast glands will start producing more milk to nourish the cub there's two outcomes cub lives or dies mum does what mum can do and produces uh, milk excessive milk and they've shown that if in in a human being if a if a child has been really ill in hospital and a mother's been unable to help there have been correlations and links with that and breast cancer later on in life um so it's, it's the body having an adverse effect to an emotion 
and we can I, I I've worked on a daily basis with people who have certain dysfunctions and it's an emotion that's creating a problem or keep intention take your upper trapezius in your shoulders or your sternocleidomastoid they're just muscles up in around the neck and the shoulders they're cranial nerves that drive those muscles unlike all the other muscles in your body so if you're carrying tension you're pulling your shoulders up around your ears you can see it and that creates tension and migraines so someone's migraine headaches can come from from an emotion they've got or over overwork stress you know overstressed at work should i say so we we're human beings we wear emotions if you get embarrassed you go red you know that's a response as a reaction so to, to go back backtrack i do kind of wander off a little bit here but it's just the genius of the body the body will heal itself medication will create an environment for a time where the body can just get by and then start healing again first of all you've got to find out what is the cause what's the what's what's caused the pain what's caused the problem what's caused the the tumor what, what what's what's causing the thing and once you go after that then you then then the body heals itself because you've taken out the problem so what is the the latest direction that you're heading on you've recently just qualified in a, in a new sort of innovative another innovative field area should we say and so just explain what that is and 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 why you wanted to why you wanted to do that okay so i'm i'm developing myself to become a functional movement neurologist beauty of today is you can call yourself whatever you want so i kind of call myself that so i'll just call you jonah is that (laughs) right i I take anything as long as it's it's normally four layers coming from you no so functional movement neurologist just means function you're walking you're moving you're doing normal stuff so it's a bit of a glam title for something we do every day and movement is we're, we're designed to move bone muscles move bones and the neurologist is just the the software program the brain that runs the system so i'm just trying to harmonize rehabilitating functional movement how someone moves gait being the pinnacle we were born to to walk so walking is is the apex of everything a human being can do everything f- after that is secondary but walking is where it's at so i can i can use walking gait to look at what's going wrong in someone so i'll I'll look at i'll look at that but then i'll use the neurology to correct the software program for that so i've studied two forms of neurology applied movement neurology uh, run by dave fleming i've been studying that for five years and also uh PDTR, proprioceptive deep tendon reflex, which was is a fairly new creation from a Mexican spine surgeon, Jose Palermo, who apparently I, I, I don't I don't know, but he's on the autistic spectrum, so he's got this super brain. I apologise if that's not the case, but that's a story I've had. But this guy, he's he's a top end surgeon, and then he uses his brain to map out how the body works all of the receptors at the moment we know there's 18 different receptors there's billions of them but there's 18 specific ones so we've got hot cold tickle itch scratch rub uh, you've got bump you've got sharp sharp stimulus and basically what what that is is it, we can take out noxious stimulus in the body so the thing i'm studying at the moment the thing i'm working with and and pretty successfully is all the injuries that you've ever had in your body are still there on your nervous system in your master system in on, on the computer almost like a digital record within your body exactly that exactly that so the human body being what it is is extremely resourceful so it can suck up a few little injuries a bump here and a knock there and a and a little bit of something here and a trap your finger in the door and a bump on the nose and it will take a lot 
it will take a hell of a lot for it to start acting adversely, but small changes will happen. So you roll an ankle, for instance, the information now coming through that ankle. So you stretch you stretch a ligament, that ligament has stopped sending 100% information. Let's call it, it now sends 90% information. So your brain's now dealing with one foot that's sending some really crisp, clean information. And then it's getting its other foot. I mean, when you look at what a foot does, it has to hit the ground. Within, within the second, it has to hit the ground. The brain has to know how hard it's hitting, what the surface is, whether it's on stone, on the beach, whether it's up on the woods, whether it's slipping, whether it's on ice, whether it's on concrete. It then has to adapt to that ground and load into it. So it has to start lowering the arch of the foot to absorb shock. And in order to for the muscles to all take up the tension, ready to fire off. That's a serious amount of data hitting the brain. And your brain processes 4 billion bits of information a second. You know, it's, it's a supercomputer. You're comprised of 30 trillion cells that all have, all have live access to your brain. So using that as a, an example, I then injure my ankle. Mm. The body, um, with it, the help of external remedies or, or operations, will look to structurally fix that issue. Mm. And structurally everything seems to be fine but what we're saying actually is that the 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 brain your internal computer system doesn't work in the same way as it did prior to injury even though that the structure might look and feel like it functions in the same way exactly yeah exactly that so a nice way to look at it is 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 the computer so you've got the software and the hardware so your hardware has been insulted it's it's had a knock it's now been damaged in some way the modern modern intervention would be surgery if required or put in a pot and let heal let self-heal uh, or you'll be, what 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 we were trained to do was to stretch it and strengthen it. Essentially, that's what a rehab instructor would do: stretch and strengthen. And it was always thought that that was all it needed. But if you think of each ligament as being like a fiber optic, sending information to the brain, and also the brain's interpretation of it. There's a really interesting. Um, model you can look at on if you go google images it's called homunculus homunculus man and it looks like a cave troll man and his fingers are massive massive hands huge great big bulbous head with eyes ears everything's photo of me isn't it? <laughs> yeah. no, i could see that's what you're thinking i could see it in your face <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it just looks weird um and he's got these scrawny little legs so we're not too far off you know, <laughs> and his big feet but basically it's how the brain sees your body how the brain sees it through the information it receives so if you injure something it stops sending as much information and it kind of like shrinks so your foot shrunk so you you injure an ankle all those all those receptors start sending slightly less information because they've been damaged your brain thinks your foot shrunk so it will make you either micromanage that foot by getting more weight onto it so that's where we see a lot of postural imbalances from that your body's just kind of swaying over it's micromanaging this 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 dodgy foot that's not sending it enough information so it tries to protect everything's about protection and being useful but what we can do now is we can treat that like a software virus this is where it gets really really clever so we can go after that ligament we can give it a little bit of a stimulation and we can test that through muscle testing so uh, for instance earlier on mo i had you laying on your on your back on on the plinth and i tested your your rectus femoris muscle your quad muscle and it was testing strong. But then if I went after and I prodded any area, we found a couple of little spots around your head. No, <laughs> no surprises there, buddy. 
And it made you go weak. It, your, your body shut down because I'd irritated or I'd provide a stimulus that was noxious, potentially noxious. So when it comes to a ligament in your ankle, um, we could just press into that. And if that makes you go weak, we can see that there's a problem there. And then we use that PDTR, deep tendon reflex. And for instance, today that was, your, you well, not today, but you hit a tendon, you just strike it, you give it a little knock, like a, like a reflex test that the, the physio would do with a little rubber hammer onto your knee. Or for us, we can use uh, just tapping on the nose and that creates the same reflex. So we provide a little bit of stimulus um, from the ankle to the brain. We hit a DTR once, once we've done a couple of other little bits and then your brain restores it. So it reboots the software and all of a sudden your foot grows i've had had some crazy some crazy um kind of conversations with people afterwards like what they say and one (laughs) one woman was walking around and she had these massive builder's boots on because her feet weren't working and i did a bit of work with her and she's walking around as if she's kind of pulling her feet out of the mud she goes my feet are massive so for me that's like it's brilliant that's 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 gold dust it just means your brain is now fully engaged with the tissues it's now working um i mean i was i was quite surprised how easy it was for you to switch on and off with literally a a few taps on certain parts of my head or having my hand on the back of my neck and then all of a sudden muscle working all right, muscle stops, not working all right. And I found it quite, quite mesmerizing how instantaneous it was to go, how did you just do that? Although that injuries will require culture change in someone's life to prevent and, and nurture and recover from, but there's a lot of people they get instantaneous improvement just from some, what seems to be quite simple but actually has got quite a lot of deep science behind it. It it, it really is insane. I mean, it's it's there's so much to learn about how the body works, but I think at the moment we're at a really lovely place where we're all all the professions are starting to come together and talk the same language and start to understand because of the internet and we're all sharing information now. Everyone's looking over the fence, so we're able to learn a lot real quick time. So all this not all this knowledge is is flooding through now, and some someone will learn something and they'll they'll put their own spin on it and put that information out there. So we're learning at a real rapid rate now. But where we're at, at the moment is we're just seeing this supercomputer that can just restore function. It's just like a, I had a had a lady come in and she ruptured her Achilles. Uh, so that's the that's the tendon going from the from the heel uh, to the calf and like a full rupture she's coming in for a, a fast bowl. You know, she was she was she's a cricket player. She was she was she was running up to to bowl. She'd done it a thousand times before, but this 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 time she snapped her Achilles. We know that the Achilles can take can hang a mini car off it. You can hang a mini off someone's Achilles. It will not snap. So why 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 do we get these injuries? Why why do muscles tear? Why 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 do these injuries happen? What we can see now using this approach is. The muscles not innovated by nerves. They're, they're they're weak. They're flaccid, and it was it's a surprise because I mean, when earlier on when we was when we was I was showing you that. I mean, you're a big bloke. Your your legs are like tree trunks. Some might call me massive, <laughs> and modest as well, which which, yeah, which really goes along. Yeah. And I can, we can, we can just shut you down. We, I can get you to look at two lines on a bit of paper. Homocalatic crawl. And that will shut you down on a, using a software dysfunction. So your eyes will look at across, like the, the actual, an actual, just a cross, like, like you do a mathematical cross. Uh, and that will make you strong. 
but then if your eyes focus on two two lines where there's a gap between the two, uh, it, it creates dysfunction in the brain. It creates disorganization. That's, that's something that I couldn't understand. I'm literally looking at a cross, and you couldn't push my leg down, and you show me an equals, so basically to an equal sign, and you push my leg down. You you mentioned about the squat. Explain what you what you said to me earlier. Okay, so is if. <laughs> It's currently believed that you're as strong as you are. Your strength is your strength. It's, and that's not true. Your nervous system is a moment by moment. And if that's a nanosecond, that's a nanosecond. Um, what, what, we, what we know is the, what you're referring to there is the vestibular ocular system. The vestibular means the ear, the, the gyroscopes. That's the deep inner workings of the ear with the otoliths and the semicircular canals. And then they're yoked to the eyes, the ocular. So the vestibular ocular system is your for all intents and purposes your gyroscope it's a threat detect system so you're looking around you're you're looking where horizon is you're looking and monitoring threats from everywhere is the floor icy is that guy about to pull a knife out of his pocket you know your your body's constantly looking for threats so it uses this system as the apex system above everything else so if you've had a dysfunction, and I hope you don't mind me saying, if, if you've had a, uh, you play rugby, you do jujitsu, you've been in Royal Marines, you know, you've been knocked about a fair, a fair few times. There's like these fire alarms that go off in and around the head. The jaw is really important. Anywhere, anywhere on your cranium, if there's a, if there's noxious stimulus, so like this fire alarm going off that you're unaware of, it creates a dysfunction. So what we did with you earlier on, Mo, um, I just got you to look up into the top left-hand corner and that made every muscle in your body go weak. So if you're working out and you're training and you've got a deficient vestibular ocular system, you lose all your power. So I've heard story, multiple stories, people deadlifting and they, they prolapse a disc in their back because they've got dodgy back. No one's got a dodgy back. If the vestibular system goes out, the muscle system shuts down and follows suit. So for instance, you might have had a dominant, a real dysfunction, a heavy dysfunction, looking into a certain direction because it's it's about mapping. It's how the whole brain works, how the brain works as a whole, using the system to look into a, look into a direction where there is a brain dysfunction. You'll shut down. You, you can't be strong. So if you ever trained and you was and you looked hard up left for whatever reason, you was looking at a clock or something, you will lose strength and you potentially won't be able to drive back up out of that. Or worse, you'll start injuring yourself. Your 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 spine becomes unstable. I mean, the amount of times I've had people come in and say, My core don't work, I've been going Pilates and yoga and oh, I've just I've just got a weak core. It's like, no. You're an athlete. While you're sucking in air and blowing it back out, you're an athlete. And and you have everything you need available to you. Why is your brain not choosing to use that? So a lot, a lot of people get tight hip flexors. Tight, here, here's, here's a really nice one. Tight hip flexors and low back pain. People always complain of these two things together. It's because the hip flexor attaches to the spine and people give it bad press or they'll trash talk yourself. Oh, I've got a crappy hip flexor. It just won't turn off. It's like, no, 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 no. Step back. You are in charge of the most complex living organism in the universe, and it is choosing to do this. Why is it? Why is it giving you a tight hip flexor? It's choosing to do this, by the way. It's not a dysfunction. It's not just oh, I've just got dicky hips. It's choosing to do it. When you look at how that muscle's situated, the hip flexor or psoas muscle runs up all your lumbar spine. It attaches to all the transverse processes, all the bones that stick out to the side, either side. So it's in a position to protect you and stabilize you. So the real question is, all right, who's not working? 
so this thing has to. And I've found in 99% of the time, the vestibular system, people get, I get a little bit lightheaded and dizzy when I stand up quick, all right? Alarm bells are going off. I don't like bright lights. Another alarm bell is going off. It's like your vestibular system ain't working. You can't create strength. Um, I mean, we hear these stories about these little old ladies who can roll cars off of kids, you know, the car's on fire, so they roll the car off. I mean, this is some little old lady, not, not, a, not like a strength or a power lifter. She has that ability to roll that car. That's just that's just given. But up until that point, her brain's been assessing going, no, 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 too dangerous. I'm not letting you have that. Your brain will only let you have the strength it trusts you to have. So if there's an imbalance, if there's an ankle injury, you ain't you can you can squat your ass off for the rest of your life. You will only have what your brain trusts you to have. And that's the beauty of this stuff is you don't have to get wait till you get injured. You can get cleared out first. You can get MOT'd. Clear all these dysfunctions because you can find them really quick and 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 correct them. You can't be fixed. Your brain does that itself. It will fix and heal itself rapid, like super, super rapid. Like, I hope you don't mind me saying it again. For the size you are, your shoulders were piss weak. Don't believe know. him. Don't believe him. <laughs> and, and this little ex-Navy lad was able to just pull your arms out of the sky when I was testing you. And we found a ligament in your neck that was, uh, it was, it was sending information that weren't correct because you've had another you've had multiple injuries we, we won't go into all of those but you had something in your neck we corrected that and you got full strength back i couldn't move you your body did that itself it upregulated it fixed itself within a second that's what we're dealing with that's what's so exciting i couldn't believe it that's why i wanted to try it and see because i'd heard other people you know, you get rave reviews from people that come to see you. And um, I wanted to experience it myself. And, you know, it's like there's some sort of voodoo going on. It's not. It's it's uh, it's tapping into an unexplored territory of the of the human body, as it were. I mean, it's a really a fascinating subject. There's been, there's been a lot of scientific terminology that's been used. But someone listening right now, how could they improve what they're doing other than obviously coming to see you? Absolutely. Believe. Believe that things can change. The biggest problem I find is, is mindset. People are a slave to a diagnosis they've been given. For instance, okay, I won't, I won't, I won't labour the point. A guy came in and saw me two weeks ago. I've had plantar fasciitis all my life. I've seen everyone. I've still got it. That's because he didn't have it. <laughs> it weren't plantar fasciitis. It was something else. He believed he had something because someone spoke over him. You know, we are fearfully, wonderfully made. I, I am a hundred percent down the line on that. We don't know what we're truly capable of, but what I what I do know we're capable of is healing. Our bodies are far more uh, capable than we ever gave credit to. I've seen people walking out and they've had back pain their entire life and it went in one session. But your body is able to heal. It's able to do so much more than you can ever believe. You've just got to believe that it can work for you as well. It's, it's a case of you've got to have faith in your body. You know, and, and I, t I take, I run a class on Friday called Vintage Athletes. You have to be over 80 years old to come into that. And these guys come in and I've seen them change and they get, they're stronger. They're less doddery on their feet. I get them moving around. They train pretty much the same as I do. No comments on this one yet, Mo. <laughs> That's not because I train like an eight-year-old. They, they kettlebell swing, they deadlift. The difference is they were willing to give it a go. And they were optimistic. They, they were just, they were, they were happy to give something a go. And then they believed and, and, their body's changed. You, your body will continue to change and adapt if you create the right environment for it. If you stop pouring so much booze down your head, if you, if you feed it something decent, it will help you. Every single thing you do will help you. And, that, and that's what I'm saying. Have faith in your body. It will heal. You need to create the environment to grow. 
yeah, and you create yeah, yeah. the conditions to succeed and perform basically it is it's it's don't don't break yourself you know don't don't resign yourself to the scrap heap no one can like we said at the start the human spirit only you're in charge of that you only you break that people will try your entire life to, to break that but once you stand up and one, once you say no i will overcome this it happens it's in you you don't have to be special forces you don't have to be a royal marine you turned up before you joined the cormo you as a bloke you still are that same man you've just learned a lot you've been provided with a lot of experiences to help change your mindset that weren't something that was done to you that happened within you and every human being is capable of that it's why do why do why do people who suddenly get diagnosed with cancer go off and cycle the world when for the rest of their life they've sat watching telly they they were given an opportunity to change and you've got you've got to take them opportunities you've got to believe it and it's in every single one of us it's our human spirit you know even though i do on the injury side it's the human spirit it's the person the person first believe believe you can change because it's true i see it all the time every day you you see it in a different way with with the mental health side of things which is just amazing and mind body spirit it your, your body will will heal you, you could have one thing in your body that's not working and your body will let you in through one of three doors mind body or spirit um i've seen people i've had people in and i can't work on them because what I was offering them weren't what their body needed. I, I sent them to Rock to Recovery, a will name drop with Jamie Sanderson, an amazing, I say mental health charity, that doesn't do it just justice and it, and it makes people step away, but it's mind coaching, it's, it's, it's winning on the mind, it's the battlefront for the mind. And I've seen people go pain-free because they had one session of, of talking and all their pain's gone. It's like, that's, that's what their body needed you know so your body will let you use those those resources but the one thing you can't give up on is is that belief is you've, you've got to have that hope that faith and i think hope is the thing hope's the thing as long as you can hope and you, you know there's hope people give up because they're out of hope they can't see a way out so i just try and provide opportunities to show them that there is a way out and things can change and very quickly like we did the neurology earlier on you can change your understanding and perception of your body already. Maybe that's a lifelong thing. You've seen something change instantly for you. So, yeah, hope. I think hope, don't let anyone break you. I think that's a uh, fantastic message and one that will be a, a good one to finish on. For those that are listening, how do, how do they, and they want to know more? Or they, they want to come and see you for treatment or for it, it, some sort of input. How, how, what's the best way of them getting in touch with you? Uh, okay, um, so my clinic's called 360 Rehab, the movement clinic. I'm in Exmouth in Devon. It's a beautiful little part of the world if you, if you want to go on your little holiday. Um, but um, just, just my website, uh, 360rehab.com and all there. So, yeah, I mean, I the way I work is uh, we've now got a functional brain scanner. So a lot of people come in with certain injuries and they say, oh, my foot got uh, a muscle tear and it won't heal. Put them on a brain scanner and it, it uh, laser tracks your eyes, gives you a few little tasks to do. And it tells you if your brain's working or not. And then lo and behold, most people's foot problem isn't in their foot. They've got a brain dysfunction. And the beauty of that is... It's rapid. It's really quick. The brain, the brain works super fast and heals itself. It's just a load of bioelectrical synapses. So I can brain scan. So you come in for a body MOT. So I'll brain scan you first. I'll do a functional biomechanical check, and then I'll do a neurological check. Pretty much once we've done that, we know what's going on. We know where to go for. We we can hit the, the spot pretty quick. Um, so so that's what we do. My biggest thing is I don't I don't want people to keep coming back. 
if if that's happening and I've failed. But we do have to change the mindset. And the mindset is don't just think you're going to pay someone money and your body heals itself. Depending on what it is, there's a journey to be had. You might need to change your lifestyle. For instance, sitting down at an office all day is not what we're designed to do. Your body will just dumb down. You need to move. So it might be a movement strategy you need. Or, you know, it could be something very complex could take one session. Something fairly innocuous could take six. You know, generally, I don't see anyone past six, six sessions because they're done. They're done and dusted. I want people to get back to life. There's nothing better than seeing someone down on the beach or seeing someone out running who couldn't run because of an injury when you come in that that's what i like seeing i just want to be real relevant and have a purpose and, and i think i'm there now i'm really happy with what i know i know i don't know as much as i want to but today i know as much as i do and i'll do as much as i can with that it's not going to stop me learning but every day i'll, I'll, I'll check myself in with that that's awesome mate and for what it's worth i know that you're real and i know that you're relevant and your passion in in human human science is um is plain to see Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been fascinating listening to what you know. There's plenty more in there, I know, even though that I do know that you've got you've got a bit of a pinhead, but that's fine. <laughs> um, but mate, thank you very much for your time, and I and I've got no doubt in my mind that people that are listening to this will would have taken a, a great deal away from it. Thanks very much, mate. Thank you, mate. Thank you for having me on.